Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Welcome to the season eight opener of Word. Coming up on the program, we'll dive into the underworld of the mob and their connection to jazz music. The musicians were, of course, practitioners of the music. And the Sicilian mob bosses, many of them, some of the earliest members of the mafia in the United States, owned and operated the clubs. Plus, fall will be here soon, and we'll get some tips on some good reads for the season. Her writing is beautiful, and what listeners may not realize is that she wrote this book when she was 16. And she worked on it when she was 16 and 17, and then I believe it was published when she was 19. But first, we dive into the detective genre with New Mexico novelist James C. Wilson. His fifth in a series of books featuring lead character Fernando Lopez is out. It's called The Dead Go Fast. Recently, I caught up with Wilson, and we began our discussion talking about how long he's been writing. I'm in my 70s now. I mean, I've always been a writer. I... um moved to Santa Fe in 1973, I think. And I was lucky enough to get a job writing for the newspapers there for a few years. I had graduated from the University of Nebraska, also had an MA from Nebraska. And I wrote fiction short stories that were published basically in literary magazines. And I went back to school at UNM and finished a PhD. And in the early 1980s, my wife and I moved to Cincinnati. And we both had jobs in uh, different colleges, universities there. Finally, in 2012, we moved back to New Mexico. And I was in the midst of writing my first Santa Fe mystery. My mystery series is called the Fernando Lopez Santa Fe Mystery Series. And Peyote Wolf was the first one. And I really liked writing about New Mexico because of its, its deep, deep history. And I found writing mysteries was an easy way to do that and in a commercial way and sell books. It's just something that I really love doing. And uh, I'm just glad now that I have the time to do it. Your latest book, The Dead Go Fast, uh, as you mentioned, it's the fifth in this mystery series featuring the main character, Fernando Lopez, and Santa Fe. And you talked a little bit about your love for New Mexico. Tell us about the evolution of his character through these five arcs, if you will. Well, you know, he's fairly consistent from book to book, but, you know, he's, he's an older detective at first, and then he becomes a private investigator in the last book and the ones that will proceed. Uh, but he's a little cranky. He's, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he's affable, but he's a little cranky sometimes, um, a little jaded. He's not tribal. His father was an, from an old Spanish family, but his mother was an Anglo. So he is married to his wife, Estelle, and um, the two of them are, at least at the beginning of the series, very happy. That changes somewhat as the series evolves, um, because after Fernando retires from the Santa Fe Police Department, 
Estelle basically works harder for her. So some things change, but his character remains pretty much the same. In this particular book, The Dead Go Fast, we're dealing with a a dead woman, right? A missing Santa Fe artist and a hidden Georgia O'Keeffe painting that depicts the end of the world. Put that together for us in the plot. How did you come up with that idea? And and as far as the plot goes, what drives it? I mean, obviously, we don't want to give away the ending, but if you could just give us a little bit of how the story progresses. Well, you know, yeah, okay. Well, pretty much all of my um, mysteries evolve the same way. I mean, I I don't chart out my plot. I don't write my plot on the wall like Faulkner did at uh, his mansion. <laughs> I, I don't do that. I don't uh, start with an elaborate plot because if I, I've tried that before and it just doesn't work for me. I, I always feel like I'm doing homework, you know, trying to fill in the blanks. For me, I start with um, a central scene, usually a, a character and a scene that uh, intrigues me and that it concerns history because all of my mysteries are deep, are steeped in history. I mean, New Mexico is uh, an incredible place. I mean, Arizona probably is too in terms of its history. But here, New Mexico is an ancient haunted landscape, uh, both uh, natural and cultural. You know, we have ruins that are 1,200 years old, stone cities that are 1,200 years old. I'm thinking about Chaco Canyon. And the culture is layered with Native American, Hispanic, and Anglo cultures, one on top of another. And the old saying in New Mexico is that you can't walk anywhere in the state without stepping on the bones of the ancients. So I've always, and the history is so rich that I've always tried to incorporate some history in each of the books. Um, but going back to my writing, how I, how I, how I start with the central character, um, I'm old fashioned because my books are not um, high tech thrillers. They're based on character. And I find that the characters that I create then propel the plot. This is gonna sound a little weird, but I do a lot of my thinking about it in my dreams, sleeping. And so do you have a, a dream journal? Like when you wake up, you have something near your bedside? You know, you write I, things well, down? I go, yes, I go to the computer, you know, and I make notes. Uh-huh. But that's how I compose. I don't start with an outline. That's interesting um, because I'm thinking, uh, you, when you're talking about character development, I'm thinking about an acting exercise that we did mm-hmm. many years ago when I was in university. And it was this like detailed list of questions like, does this person like coffee or tea? You know, what's their favorite color? Right. And you sort of answered all of these questions to come up with this kind of general character arc. But you're saying that characters come from your dreams largely. Well, not characters so much, but the plots. I see. Where the characters go. I Sometimes I feel like I have no control over the characters. <laughs> they, <laughs> they do what they want to do. Right. <laughs> and um, I have to sort of rein them in a little bit and rethink and uh, try to develop that in a way that's, you know, true to what the characters want to do, but also serves the purpose of the plot. Right. And and what you're talking about there is, you know, with respect to the NaNoWriMo writing community, it's the difference between being a plotter and and a pantser. And it sounds like you sort of have evolved from a plotter to not necessarily flying by the seat of your pants, but you get the gist. 
Well, James yeah. C. Wilson, author of the Fernando Lopez Santa Fe Mystery Series, the fifth book, The Dead Go Fast, is available. And we really appreciate talking to you, James. Thanks so much for coming to Word. Well, thank you. You can find out a bit more about Larry C. Wilson on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, what did the mob and jazz musicians have in common? We'll find out on Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. I'm Tom Maxidon. Football season is here, and that means tailgating time. If your tailgate doesn't function like it used to, consider donating that SUV or pickup to the KJZZ Vehicle Donation Program and support the programs you love. Find out more at cars.kjzz.org. Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Some people think that smart speakers are a futuristic surveillance device straight out of George Orwell, constantly monitoring you as you engage in your most private actions and conversations. Well, they are. But did you know they're also a radio? That's right. You can ask your smart speaker to play NPR to hear your local station and all your favorite NPR shows. And it will. It will also report you to the central ministry. But why not enjoy yourself while you still can? Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest splits his time between New York and Albuquerque, New Mexico. His latest in a series of exhaustively researched works focuses on the connection to the mob and jazz musicians. It's called Dangerous Rhythms. Author T.J. English has been prolific for many years, and that's where we picked up our recent convo. I started as a journalist really back in my formal education, high school, college, I was always involved with the school newspaper, and uh, I seized upon journalism as a way to get off my ass and get out into the world. Uh, (laughs) It was the the kind of writing that excited me the most, and so I felt like I was destined for this in a way. And uh, when I first came to New York City from the West Coast in 1981, um, of course, I had bills to pay, so I started working as a cab driver at night and I would do journalism assignments during the day. And um, my idea of journalism, of course, was to attempt to get the stories that nobody else could get. And so this drew me into the realm of crime, particularly organized crime, which were the always the seemingly impossible stories. And uh, so that was the challenge. That's what attracted me as a journalist. Um, Of course, I wrote about other things as well. I wrote about music and about movies to an extent and about politics and about sports, a little bit of everything. But I kept coming back to crime as a subject. Well, crime and music is the topic of your new book, your latest called Dangerous Rhythms. And for the first half of the 20th century, Mobsters and musicians enjoyed a mutually beneficial partnership. Uh, artists like Fats Waller, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, I mean, the list goes on and on, Ella Fitzgerald, and mobsters like Al Capone, Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, they provided opportunities that would not otherwise have existed for these jazz musicians. What were those opportunities? Venue space? Primarily to play in the clubs where the music was being showcased. Jazz, uh, unlike, for instance, European classical music, which was fostered in universities and music academies, uh, cultural institutions, jazz came up from the streets, came up from the ghetto. Many musical tributaries led into the creation of the music. 
But once it started to develop in New Orleans in the early part of the 20th century, um, it was a music that could not be denied. It was the people's music. It was a movement from the streets. And so it was a challenge to find ways to bring the music to the public. And this is where the mob came in. And, and it was early formations of the mob. It, it's really just a quirk of history that organized crime and jazz began sort of at the same time in the United States of America in the early years of the 20th century. The immigrant class, primarily Sicilians, but also Irish and Jews were drawn to jazz. Um, it, in many ways, was the music in which the immigrant class and the children of, of African-American slaves came together out of a mutual love for, for the music. The uh, musicians were, of course, practitioners of the music. And the Sicilian mob bosses, many of them, some of the earliest members of the mafia in the United States, owned and operated the clubs. They weren't called nightclubs back then. They were called honky-tonks or dance halls. And this is where the earliest formations of jazz bands began to play. And some of its earliest stars, of course, like Louis Armstrong in New Orleans, um, recognized from the very beginning that in a, in a perilous world, and you have to keep in mind that in the early 20th century, we were just coming to a long period of, of uh, a reign of terror in the United States known right. as lynching. Right. And so African-American musicians entering into the commercial marketplace, I think realized they needed some form of protection. And the mob promised and delivered in, uh, as protection for the musicians. Interesting, but also there is an irony to this and to these opportunities because certainly a lot of people are aware of deep roots of racism with relationship to the mob. And in some ways, these venues that existed were kind of a glorified plantation system. Can you describe why? Yeah, well, the clubs tended to reflect the larger society in that sense. Um, it's a curious thing when we look back on it now that many of these prominent clubs, particularly in the 1920s when this music really took off in the Prohibition era, the Jazz Age, clubs like the Cotton Club, and the Plantation Club, there were cotton clubs and plantation clubs in many different cities. And they all had the uh, aesthetic of the antebellum South, the aesthetic of servitude. Um, Blacks were not allowed in as patrons, but of course they made up the majority of the musicians and the staff at the uh, nightclubs. So this is the way the world was. And jazz was kind of associated with that, uh, I guess because of its roots in New Orleans and Louisiana in the South, that this was an aesthetic that took hold and became the aesthetic of jazz during the period of the 1920s. The mob being the primary presenters of the music, the owners of these clubs, adhered to that aesthetic. That plantation aesthetic also became kind of a business model for the mob and the musicians. It was, in a sense, metaphorically, a plantation system. The clubs were owned by the plantation bosses, and uh, the labor was supplied 
by African-American musicians who were in a sense like chattel in the clubs. Uh, and this is the way it was for quite a while before that began to break down in the 1940s. And it really didn't start to be eradicated entirely until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. You mentioned your love of exploring crime as a journalist. And, you know, I can understand how that led into your interest in this. And um, as far as research goes, because this is a voluminous work, how long did it take you to research and, and write this book? Well, all the, with all the books that I do, uh, and they're all fairly long, they tend to be somewhere around 400, 500 or more pages, and they involve a lot of research. Um, I, I start with subjects that I have had an interest in for a long time to begin with. So I've been a jazz lover since I was a teenager. And anyone who loves jazz knows that falling in love with the music also involves falling in love with the culture of jazz and the history of jazz. Right. We're old enough to remember buying vinyl. You know, when you bought a, a jazz record, it was like buying an encyclopedia on jazz, the liner notes were extensive. All, yeah. the information, all the information that was in the liner notes was part of the joy and process of taking in this music. So in a sense, you could say I've been researching this subject matter my entire adult life. I was aware of the organized crime aspect of it just from having read history books on jazz and uh, biographies of selected musicians that would touch upon it. But in many ways, it was kind of a subterranean history, a hidden history. The, the musicians rarely talked about this back in the era where this was happening, you know, the 20s, 30s, and 40s. It was just considered taboo. And dangerous, right? It's and the dangerous. title. Yeah. Yeah. Dangerous to even mention the names of the club owners and the mobsters that the musicians were working for. It wasn't until the 1960s and 70s and 80s when these mobsters most of them had died off and and were long gone that musicians like duke ellington and cab calloway and louis armstrong did come forward in their memoirs and start to write about this era and of course there's some tremendous uh, the real backbone of the research for this book was a lot of the oral histories uh audio oral histories that had been recorded by jazz uh, scholarly institutions like the Smithsonian and Rutgers University and a, and a few others who were pressing enough to do interviews, extended interviews with a lot of the old time jazz greats before they passed away. And these oral histories have been preserved and are available. Um, so I was able to dip into a lot of that. And that's where a lot of these firsthand accounts come from of that era or those eras, actually, because we're talking about this story runs really all the way from the beginning of jazz in the early part of the century, all the way up to the 1980s. The book is called Dangerous Rhythms, Jazz and the Underworld. It's by author T.J. English. T.J., I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your latest. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. You can find out a bit more about T.J. English and Dangerous Rhythms on our website, Word kjzz.org. Before our summer break, we put out some recommendations for good reads. Coming up, as fall approaches, we have some new suggestions for the ensuing season. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. 
It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moth stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. A high-quality education shouldn't have to come at a high price. Rio Salado College offers online classes and career-ready degree programs you can take from home. Day or night, learn on your own schedule. Learn more at riosalado.edu. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our next guest is the faculty co-chair of library services at Rio Salado College in Tempe. Sarah Storr joined us to present some reading suggestions before we went on break in June. She's back with some fall reads, but I was firstly curious to know how she spent her summer. I had a lovely summer. I got to spend it uh, in Idaho with my family, did a lot of rafting, a lot of outdoor adventure. So it's, you know, being back in Phoenix right now, the summer is a great time to be in the house reading and fall is, you know the same. So I'm excited to have some titles to bring here for folks who are in a similar situation. Maybe not all of Arizona is going to be hot and muggy. muggy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Lately anyway, right. for sure. Lately. So hopefully the I've brought some titles with me for those of us who are still finding ourselves in our homes, escaping the heat for the next few months uh, that will keep people busy and hopefully something that they'll be able to identify with. Well, if you recognize Sarah's voice, that's because she was part of the uh, last season. And as we begin a new one, and as we are getting closer to fall, we wanted to bring Sarah back. And she's got a list of some really interesting selections. Let's start with memoir and diary of a misfit. It's a, a memoir and a mystery, the way that it's built. It's by Casey Parks. Who is Casey Parks? And what's the mystery? Yeah. So some listeners may recognize uh, Casey Parks' name. She's actually a reporter for the Washington Post. And so when Parks came out as a lesbian in 2002 in the South, she was rejected by members of her family and her community. She had a very conservative Republican grandmother, though, who at the time confided in Parks that when the grandmother was was younger, she lived across the street from, and these are the grandmother's words, quote, a woman who lived as a man. So the grandmother at that time asked Parks to find out what happened to that man, Roy Hudgens, who was a small town country singer. And so Diary of a Misfit chronicles Parks' 10-year search for information about Roy. So as you said, it's part investigative piece, Part personal history is Parks is diving into questions about what it means to belong. Crying in the Bathroom is another memoir. This is by Erica Sanchez, and it's actually a collection of essays, a lot of different topics from sex to feminism to depression, frankly. Sanchez is also an award-winning novelist and poet as well, and I'm kind of wondering if those skills play into this type of writing. Absolutely. So, yeah, listeners may recognize Sanchez from a previous novel that was very critically acclaimed and was a National Book Award finalist, I'm Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. 
Um, so crying in the bathroom, as you said, like chronicles Sanchez's um, upbringing as a Mexican-American in 1990s suburban Chicago. Her writing is beautiful. It's also, though, very funny. She and I are both in our 40s. And for me, this book read like a conversation with one of my best friends. Her writing is really candid, really honest. So definitely one that I would recommend for folks this fall to dig into. We're in the second half of baseball season, and sadly, (laughs) I don't think that's going to help the Diamondbacks much. Um, But The Church of Baseball, The Making of Bull Durham by Ron Shelton is out. And I actually heard an interview with him on NPR very recently. I remember Bull Durham as a kid. It was 1988 film about minor league baseball team and widely revered as one of the better sports movies at the time. Shelton talked in the interview about how difficult it was to get people invested in a movie about minor league baseball. And so this is the recounting of the making of Bull Durham. Folks might not have known that at the time the jury was still out about Kevin Costner's leading man potential. Uh, Susan Sarandon was already a hit, but there were still some doubts, and he explores a lot of that, right? Exactly. It is such a, a an inside glimpse into how that film was made. And you're right. Like, this was not a cast that people were convinced were could lead that film to success. I think this one is a great crossover, not only for baseball fans and fans of, um, I think fans of the film will also love it. Even if you aren't a Bull Durham film fan and you're maybe just more of a film buff in general, there's so much kind of insider scoop from Ron Shelton about the process of movie making and um, how he went about it. And, you know, I also didn't realize that Ron Shelton had played in the minors himself. So it's just a really a, a really great one to dig into, um, you know. Might be great to start with a Bull Durham rewatch if you haven't seen it in a, in a few decades, Good and then idea. yeah, go from there. I was surprised when I heard the interview that the movie is still as popular as it is. I mean, like we said, this came out in 1988, but it seems to still hold up in 2022. Uh, as far as fiction, I want to jump to Night of the Living Res. This is by Morgan Talty who's a Native American writer living in Maine, where he sets, what, 12 stories contained in this book, I think. So it's not just uh, a novel. Uh, These are tales of family and a community as they struggle with a painful past and an uncertain future. Right. So like you said, we've got 12 interconnected stories in this one. They're all exploring life on the Penobscot Indian Reservation. And it's told from the perspective of David or Dee when he's an adult. And so the book is not linear at all. And so each of the chapters move from David as a young a young boy, D as an adult, back to when he's a teenager. Talty's writing is absolutely beautiful, and he's really examining what it means to be a Penobscot in today's world. The book looks at intergenerational trauma uh, and the importance of community. If 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 listeners haven't read this one yet. It's a wonderful collection of short stories that in my own reading of it, I felt like I walked away better equipped to be a a good human to the people in my life. So I highly recommend this one for fall reading for folks. And also for those who maybe don't want to get invested in another full novel right now and they just kind of want a piecemeal approach to a book, this might be for them. For sure. And it's not super long either. So if you can, you know, 
get one story done a week. Every two weeks, you'll be done before you know it. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with more of Fall Reads from KJZZ. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Life might feel like a roller coaster as the state and world figure out what's next. Wherever you are, you can stay connected to the news with the KJZZ app. Download original podcasts or get the latest news on the free app, which you can get for your Apple or Android device. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ Sun Up today. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Let's continue our conversation now with Sarah Storr from Rio Salado Library in Tempe about fall reads. Nightcrawling is uh, the first offering from Layla Motley. It's a novel about a young black woman who walks the streets of Oakland and stumbles headlong into the failure of its justice system. It's an Oprah Winfrey book club pick, and of course uh, Winfrey recommended it. I didn't realize that Motley was also a youth poet laureate for the city of Oakland, and I guess I'll ask you a similar question, whether that skill plays into the writing of fiction here. Absolutely. Her writing is beautiful, and what listeners may not realize is that she wrote this book when she was 16. and oh, wow. it was, Yeah. And she worked on it when she was 16 and 17, and then I believe it was published when she was 19. And it's actually inspired by a true story in Oakland where a young girl was sexually abused by multiple police officers. And it was a huge scandal, but one that didn't really generate a huge amount of national outrage. And that and, and the outrage that it, that it did create at the time wasn't very um, victim-centric. And so Motley, who was growing up in Oakland and hearing this story and paying close attention to it, really used that incident as as inspiration in her work and used that crime to examine girlhood, especially when it comes to girls of color and the exploitation that can happen at the hands of their community. I read an interview with Layla where she described that her hope for this book was that it would either be a window or a mirror for readers, either um, validating and highlighting the experiences of girls of color or giving readers a glimpse uh, into the humanities of others. And, you know, I hate to just describe something as so good. That's not really a helpful description, but in <laughs> this book is really... So good. And I don't, you know, Oprah and I can't both be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Carrie Soto is Back is another piece of fiction. This is by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's uh, a novel about a female athlete, perhaps past her prime, but brought back to the tennis court for one last Grand Slam. That's right. So Carrie Soto is a a tennis player who finds out that her... uh, one of her lasting records has been broken. So she comes out of retirement to defend that uh, that record. So if listeners haven't read anything else by Reed, um, Carrie Soto is Back is part of a quartet of books that she has written. They all center on female protagonists. I will say I will I'll read anything that Taylor Jenkins writes. If I'm in a reading slump and need like a guaranteed victory, her books are great. Lots of twists and turns, really intriguing characters. And I know at Rio Salado, her books tend to fly off the shelf when they come in. 
and just another one that I'm eager to get my hands on. Let's move to poetry and The Kissing of Kissing by Hannah Emerson, who is a non-speaking autistic poet. And this work is actually part of a literary series written and curated by neurodivergent people. What an interesting idea and groundbreaking. Yeah, I'm really excited to bring this one to listeners. So this one was actually published back in the spring, but it only came to my attention earlier uh, this month. And like you said, there's it's the first in a series that will um, that are all written by neuro um, neurodivergent authors. The series is called Multiverse, which I just think is a beautiful play on words here. And so the next title in that is coming out in November. So I thought it would be helpful to bring this one to folks so that they can have the next one uh, on their horizon too and get started with this. So in this particular title. This is Emerson's debut full-length collection. And I thought in reading it, it's just so thought-provoking in terms of considering the importance that language plays for nonverbal poets. Uh, Hannah uses the word yes and the phrases yes, yes throughout her collection. It's kind of a form of connection between her poems. So I'd love it if, you know, listeners say yes to this one, too, and the subsequent titles in this multiverse series, because I think it's a really important expansion of our understanding of what poetry is and what it can be for different folks. Another recommendation of poetry is The True Account of Myself as a Bird. It's by Robert Wrigley. And uh, sort of the log line on this one is in language that is both elegiac and playful, declarative and yet musical, in traditional sonnets, quatrains, and free verse, Wrigley transcribes the consciousness and significance of every singing thing. It's a conversation between humans and the planet. What a beautiful description. Right. And it's so spot on. So I first came across Robert Wrigley after someone shared his poem, Potato, with me. Uh, as a fellow potato lover, that one really spoke to me. Um, but the, the the true account of myself as a bird has so much playfulness in it, even when he's exploring a topic that you would think, you know, is less inclined towards that. And, you know, there are poems in the collection exploring topics like aging and Donald Trump, but he makes beautiful connections to nature throughout, which in my mind is perfect for the fall and the changing of the seasons. Our final poet is Sandra Cisneros, and a lot of people know her work. Woman Without Shame is the title of the collection. It's been almost three decades since she released a collection of works. I'm curious if you know anything about the motivation of sort of why now? You know, I don't know about the why now other than everything I've heard about this collection is that it's really examining what it means to be aging and looking at all of her life experiences in the past few decades. You're right, it's been 28 years since her last poetry collection came out. And so this one is coming out in the middle of September. I haven't gotten my hands on it yet, but what I loved was Joy Harjo's plug for the collection. She wrote, these new poems by Sandra Cisneros prove that a mystic poet can be an aging brown-skinned woman, shameless in her being. I want to live in this book keep the doors and windows open, even if stray dogs and beggars wander through. And that's exactly the kind of poetry I'm really looking forward to digging into this fall as well. And of course, Joy Harjo was the poet laureate for the nation and groundbreaking as well for that. So a lot to celebrate with this particular work. And certainly I think those comments highlight that. 
Sarah Storr is with Rio Salado College and the library services where she is faculty co-chair. I want to thank you so much for coming back to Word and telling us about some good ideas for fall reads this time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to get to be here. And I would also just love to remind listeners, if you're a resident of Maricopa County and 18 years or older, that you're able to come and check out library books from any of the 10 Maricopa County community colleges, too. Sarah, we'll talk to you again closer to winter. When it's a little bit cooler. Awesome. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. You can find out how to access Rio Salado's library on our website, word.kjzz.org. KJZZ is licensed to the Maricopa County Community College District and is a service of Rio Salado College. Thanks for your loyal following of Word. We're back later this month with another episode. In the meantime, send us an email with a comment or suggestion for a future guest or topic. You can find the link on our website. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.